Welcome to Blitzcast, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. Welcome to another episode of Blitzcast. My name is Alex, and I'm flying solo today. Ed Hunt is out with the cold. Hopefully, he'll be back next week. I, I wish him well. NFL season continues. Uh, we are set for the conference championship games. Uh, the divisional round was as exciting as ever. And I would like to start with the NFC championship game. The game between the number one seed, the Packers, versus the number five seed, the Tampa Bay Bucks. The Packers had an easy go of it in Lambeau Field. I mean, I'm looking at the numbers that Aaron Rodgers has put up. He went 23 of 36 for 296 yards. He threw for two touchdowns and he ran one in uh, on the ground. The clincher that Rodgers had was a 58-yarder to Alan Lazard with 652 left in the game. That was the big throw that kind of put the game away. The Rams didn't have much of an answer for the Packers' aerial attack. The Rams had the number one defense coming in, that, but that certainly didn't help. The Packers look like the clear-cut favorite team moving forward in the NFC. Uh, Bavada Sportsbook has the Packers minus three and a half over the Bucks this weekend. It's the early game. And let's talk about the Bucks. The Bucks that finally conquered and got over the hump over the New Orleans Saints this year. I picked the Bucks going forward. I believed in Tom Brady. I, I believed that he had a, a chip on his shoulder. Brady and the Bucks did enough. By saying enough, it was kind of a team effort. Leonard Fournette had a good game. Not only running with the ball, but also catching the ball out of the backfield. I felt like the defense, the Bucks defense, rose to the occasion. Drew Brees threw three picks. They held Michael Thomas to zero catches uh, during that Sunday evening game. I realized that Michael Thomas wasn't 100%. He is set for having surgery already, and it was just it was a tough season for him. But when you hold the number one receiver, arguably the best receiver in the game, or a top three receiver in the game to zero catches, you're certainly going to win. I would assume this was Drew Brees' last game. It certainly wasn't his best. He wasn't able to push the ball downfield. It was amazing. The The biggest play that the Saints had was when on that trick play where Jameis Winston uh, completed that, that deep ball downfield. Uh, Traquan Smith had a couple of touchdowns, but the Saints just didn't look the same. They were at home, but the Bucks were a more prepared team. They were... Firing on all cylinders, uh, they were able to get to Drew Brees, and um, the Bucks came out on top. And now they have a, a tall task this week, going into Lambeau Field, playing against the number one seed, the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers against Tom Brady. I guess this is, I would pay to be there this weekend if I could see that game live. There are not too many instances that we're going to see this type type of matchup again. Brady came to Tampa Bay so he can be in this position. 
He's one step away from being in the Super Bowl, proving to Patriot Nation and, and Bill Belichick that he shouldn't have gotten rid of me. I should have come back because I'm certainly capable of leading a team to this point, to the NFC Championship game and possibly to the Super Bowl. All he needed was weapons. And he certainly had weapons this year with Godwin, with Mike Evans. They added Gronkowski, and then they brought in A.B. He's got Ronald Jones. He's got Leonard Fournette. Any quarterback, when he has weapons around him, he's certainly going to succeed. Most people would say, well, do you think the Bucks are going to win this game against the, the Green Bay Packers? And I do think they have a shot because... Brady is the best cold-weather quarterback in the last 20 or 30 years. I think I was looking at it. He is 12-2 and all-time in cold weather. Obviously, he's been in a lot of big games in Foxborough when, when the temperature fell below zero. So this isn't going to phase him playing against the Packers in the cold in Lambeau Field. This is a tough matchup for me to go with because it's a tough pick. I'm basically, am I going to go with Aaron Rodgers, who is most likely going to win the regular season MVP award? Or am I going to go with the best quarterback of all time, the GOAT, who has won six championships with the Patriots and is chasing another one? As tough as this pick is for me, my heart wants to go with the Bucks because I want the story to continue. I want a 43-year-old quarterback to play in the Super Bowl, but my head says that the Green Bay Packers are going to win a close one on their home field. Aaron Rodgers will have his vengeance. For all those people that said that he's not the same quarterback anymore, he certainly has come back and has proven that he's still on top of his game. This would be just an awesome finish to to the season to see Aaron Rodgers in the Super Bowl going against whether it's going to be the Chiefs or the Bills I'd love to see this I just think the Bucks they need to basically harass Aaron Rodgers in the same way that they they did it to Drew Brees in the divisional round if they want to have any shot at all I know that Todd Bowles is going to be dialing up pressure but you have to be careful because Aaron Rodgers can still hurt you with his feet He's still great at improvising, rolling out out of the pocket and throwing well on the run. How are the Bucks going to match up with Devontae Adams? That's a tall task. I mean, that secondary has played well, but they don't have a Jalen Ramsey like the Rams had. And the Rams still couldn't stop Devontae Adams. They're going to put Adams in motion and uh, they're going to try to get him free in any way possible, whether it's outside or in the slot or on the move. Adams has proven that he's a dangerous target. That's why I'm going with the Packers. I think they're just a more complete team that would be able to make a few more plays in the fourth quarter. The over and under on this game is 51, according to Bavada. I just think Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady will be able to put up a lot of points. I would, I would take the over. Even though a lot of people want to see Tom Brady in that home stadium in Tampa, wouldn't that be the story, right? We haven't seen that in a while. Uh, basically a home team hosting the Super Bowl. But I do think Green Bay is is going to be the one in Tampa instead of the Bucks.
I love having this guest on. He gives a lot of interesting insight into the Florida Gators and everything that's going on around that program. I'm joined by Edgar Thompson. He's a beat writer for the Orlando Sentinel. He covers the Gators football, basketball, golf, you name it. Edgar, how is sunny Florida? It's like 65 here. It'd be hard to give this up permanently. Let's start with the the former Gators head coach, Urban Meyer. You obviously covered him for a while. Uh, We all know the success that he had in Gainesville. He won a national championship before he left abruptly after all the stuff came out. What do you think of his move to the NFL and specifically to the Jacksonville Jaguars? I was pretty surprised when this started percolating. So I'm based in Gainesville. So my brief history is I covered the Gators in 02 season through the 06 season for the Palm Beach Post. Headed south, did NFL for several years and golf for a couple, and ended up back up here in 12 with the Orlando Sentinel to cover the Gators again. Two of those seasons were with Urban's first two years here, 05, 06. Dan Mullen was his offensive coordinator. Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin were freshmen when I covered their Urban second team. So we're talking a long time ago. Urban was a different guy then. I mean, everything was new. It was like a honeymoon period. I mean, he was young. I mean, he he's barely 40 years old. Now he's, you know, 56. And things were fresh. By the time he left UF, things were not fresh. Criticism, lost opportunities by the end with, with the Alabama loss in the 2009 SEC title game where they got ran off the field as an unbeaten number one. Uh, a retirement, and then coming out of retirement within a day, and then retiring again, and then going back to Ohio State 11 months later, which really led a lot of Gator fans to just write that guy off. I mean, they were like, okay, you you basically kept us at the end of a string for two years because of your health and wanting to be with your family, and things are more important than football, and now you're at Ohio State, you know, had his issues there at the end. So it's kind of like a lot's changed since I when I used to deal with Urban, but I still have a lot of respect for him from the time I spent with the guy. I personally felt he was probably out of coaching unless maybe some college football program could entice him. But then as someone pointed out when all this Jags buzz started, is if he were to go back to the college ranks to Texas, for example, USC was one that's been talked about, if that job were to open, you know, high-profile programs with great recruiting bases, he would be scorning Ohio State then. So suddenly he'd be like, you know, public enemy number one with two really high-profile fan bases in college football. There's still a segment of people here who appreciate what Urban did for this program, but a lot more that – have disdain for Urban because of the way he left the program, because of all the bad publicity he brought the program with the off-the-field transgressions. I mean, the 34 arrests or 37, whatever the number was, his enabling of Aaron Hernandez. Um, everyone knows that story, how tragically it ended. It's like he's persona non grata with a good segment of the fan base. I don't know that I necessarily buy that that's fair. Uh, he delivered two national championships in a three-year span and in six seasons really did some amazing things here for this program. Yeah, but in terms of him going to the NFL, yeah, I was surprised because 
the way Urban operated, I'll say this in conclusion, seemed to really fit a college model. Whether it was running an offense, it was a lot of like spread, direct snap stuff. He really liked that. He thought the Rich Rod offense with Pat White at West Virginia was like amazing. Think what his offense even with Utah, Alex Smith's mobility, Tim Tebow here. I mean, he ran Tim Tebow 20 times in some games. You can't do that in the NFL. But he, he wasn't the play caller, and he really wasn't the brains behind all those offenses and, and all that stuff. What he does so effectively, and this is why I think he can succeed at the NFL level um, or at any level he chooses, is, and that's the ultimate one, is because he's such a CEO type who knows how to run the overall deal. He, he will hire a good staff or at least attempt to do so, or, um, and he'll believe in that staff, and he'll delegate to that staff. But he will also be involved in small things like special teams, which was a real passion of Urban. He was a special teams coach when he started out and wide receivers coach at CSU under you know, maybe Earl Bruce, I think, and then Sonny Lubick. That, that's his roots. And he knows how to coach stuff like special teams, you know, get hidden yardage, flip field position, create turnovers, opportunities. These are things that are like little secret formula kind of stuff to coaching success. I mean, you can only go out there and dazzle people with X's and O's so much. I mean, sometimes you just got to grind out wins. Sometimes you need that turnover. You need to flip the field. You need to do things like that. So I think he's pretty good at orchestrating all facets of a program. The other thing he's good at is he's got an incredibly commanding personality and a high degree of intelligence. So he will impress, like, free agents potentially. Fifty-five people are in NFL rosters. That played for Urban, I think, is what I read. And think about how many people he played against Urban's team and know how good he is. So he might have a real end with free agents that way. And as I said, he's very impressive. He was an incredible recruiter, you know, tireless. So he'll put that energy into free agency, I believe. He also recognized immediately that Jacksonville needs to come into the 21st century, or at least 2020 in fairness, in terms of facilities. They are lagging behind everyone in the NFL. They have all kinds of things that are antiquated, their approaches. I mean, they don't have a standalone um, separate from the stadium kind of thing. He's going to get all that done. And he is a billionaire, multi-billionaire to do all that, whereas at the college level, you need to don't get donors and you need this, you need that and do all this. He's looking at the big picture, man. He's not thinking he's going to come in here. And like Steve Spurrier, i got to be honest, an incredible college coach, Top 20 probably of all time because of the way he revolutionized offense in the SEC and college football in general. But he went to the Washington Redskins thinking he was just going to draw up ball plays and win with his staff that he took from college. He took his college staff and thought he'd go up to Washington and call ball plays and outbox everybody. Well, that you got to do more than that in the NFL. And Urban will, and he understands that, I believe. But we do know that Urban has quit two jobs because of health concerns. And you know the NFL job is 24 hours a day. That's not college. I know he knows that, that it's going to take a lot of hard work. But I'm just, I wonder how much he's going to be able to withstand it. Will his health allow him to to stay at that job for a long time? I mean, that's the $64,000 question. I don't know what 64000 if that's really the expression anymore, but... It's the bit of the elephant in the room. To use another cliche, I mean, his health 
has been his undoing. The stress of like losing or not having every I dot and T crossed or whatever the obsession is, missing out on a recruit he wanted, whatever it is, he is wired tightly, man, really tightly. So let's hope that he has learned some techniques to handle that stress, stress and manage it. We all learn. I'm 54. I've learned a lot even in the past year, especially such a challenging year that we just went through. Who knows? Maybe he's like a meditator now. I have no idea what he's doing. Maybe he does yoga every day. Maybe he's found ways to manage his stuff. I don't know that Urban's going to open his, himself up to everybody about that, but maybe one day we'll find out how are you managing your health. I mean, is he, just taking, is he taking medications that are, you know, helping keep this cyst in his brain from growing? I'm sure he's doing that, but he's got this, this cyst that, you know, puts pressure on his brain stem apparently and gives him bad headaches that he had addressed. So, you know, a friend of mine's wife had one of those, and it's a real hassle. I mean, it's not fatal. I mean, it's not, like, life-threatening, but it creates a lot of discomfort. Two years from now, I just can't handle this. It's too much. I will say this. Even if he does that, though, Alex, which would be really bad optics for Irvin and would pretty much turn him into the one of the ultimate drama queens that were around the sideline in most people's mind, he would have Jacksonville's franchise at least headed in the right direction, I'm confident just based on the facilities and based on the impact he can have really quickly on a program. We saw it here. He came in here and in two years had this team that was like floundering, had just lost at Mississippi State, first win for Sylvester Croom there, who didn't last long, and took that program, took it over, got whipped at Alabama, broke down crying after losing the LSU two weeks later. I was covering those games. 20-game winning streak went down 31-3 at Alabama, which scored on the very first play of the game, 64 yards from Brody Croyle to Prothrow, the kid who broke his leg in that game. First play. And I was like, ooh, this is going to be a long day. 31-3. He looked like he'd been run over by a truck after that game, crying two weeks later. And we're thinking, man, this guy is wired tight. I mean, is he in over his head? Uh, no, he wasn't. He ends up winning a national title the next year. <laughs> So recruited Percy Harvin and Tim Tebow to that team. Urban is a winner, man. He's a competitor, and he's going in this, we hope, with eyes wide open. If he is, and if he has some ways to manage his health, uh, I, I'm not going to, like, say, look out NFL. I mean, that's the big boys. You know, that's big-time football. But he's going to make his mark, in my opinion. I mean, he is he's terrific. Look, bottom line, 187 and 32 career record. That's like, you know, a successful, like, high school, like, volleyball coach or something with a dominant program. We're talking big-time college football. He's got 187 and 36. Well, I hope he is the next Jimmy Johnson rather than Nick Saban, and we know how that story ended with the Dolphins. Let's talk about the current head coach of the Florida Gators, Dan Mullen. There were a lot of rumors, Edgar, in connection with NFL head coaching jobs. Maybe it was his agent that was just trying to get some attention, trying to, to spread the news that Mullen is ready to make that jump. Do you think it's just a matter of time before he bolts for the NFL, especially with the one-year probation coming over on the Florida Gators program? Do you think Dan Mullen is going to be gone in the next couple of years? I've always wondered if there was a curiosity about the NFL for Dan 
the one knock on Dan Mullen entering this season, there are more now, and we can discuss those in a minute, is recruiting. They're solid recruiters, and he likes to always say, well, we have our own star system, that kind of thing. You know, and he's proven. I mean, they've they've developed a lot of guys. I mean, Dak Prescott was like a nobody. Nick Fitzgerald was even less than that. You know, Dak's a top NFL quarterback now. I mean, Nick, maybe not, but he was a top SEC guy. That is a two-star recruit who ran like the wishbone in high school or whatever. Development with Dan Mullen and his car and his staff, which a lot of those guys are still with him, has been pretty exceptional. They came here two years ago or three now. Freddie Swain was like nothing. I mean, he was not even a factor. And they turned him into a very good slot receiver. He's now already having an impact in the NFL at Seattle. I mean, pretty good player already as a rookie. The list goes on. I mean, he's just one of many examples here, at least. And at Mississippi State, the list is long. But you don't have to recruit at the NFL level. It's all about football, scheming, that kind of stuff. Yeah, you got a lower free agents. You got all that. But you have guys doing stuff like that, too. Does he? Urban has a lot of um, responsibility. He's basically coming in, and he's making personnel decisions, too. Would Dan want that latitude? Probably. Would he get it? Doubtfully. Maybe. Does he, he doesn't have a leverage or urban. I mean, nobody does. Few do. He connects and O, man. He can scheme. The NFL is moving more in the direction of, like, mobile quarterbacks. Uh, he proved the past two years with Kyle Trask that he can coach a passing offense that's really dynamic. He's a terrific offensive play caller and coach, in my opinion, and I think everyone's opinion. I mean, he's top five in the college game when it comes to drawing up plays and just taking advantage of, of matchups. He's great at it. So he could go to the NFL and, like, do that, not have to worry about recruiting, not have to go do booster clubs, which he's good at it. Fans like him. He's very, you know, charismatic, smart. But does he want to do that stuff? Does he like doing it? You said it. I mean, the football is – it's 24-7 football, and it's a huge grind. I remember asking Tony Sperano, who I covered. Um, I did – I came in on the heels of that saving mess, by the way, and covered 1-15, Cam Cameron, and then Tony Sperano with the Parcells regime. And I asked Tony one day, I said, how, so how long is your work day, man? What's, what's your, how's your work week? He said that, like, Sundays were like 13 hours – I think Saturday was like 11, Friday and Saturday 11 or 12, Monday through Thursday, 17-hour day. Now, he got a break to maybe take a walk. Tony likes to take a midday walk. And I'm just floored and, and with sadness when he died of that heart attack two years ago. That was awful. He was a great guy. It's long days, man. I don't know that Dan 17-hour work days is something they do here regularly because Dan has perspective and family interests. And, but they put in long hours. And he can handle it. They have a high capacity for that. And you think about how things were struck, are structured now with the early signing period and then ending the season. And if you're in the SEC title game or whatever, or a bowl game, I mean, you're juggling so much. I mean, think about that. You got this early signing period in December, and if you're in the t- conference title game, it's like the week after it. And you have a bowl game, and you're prepping for that, and you're recruiting your tail off because that's where you, you know, your lifeblood. So there's some real intense, you know, work stretches as a college coach, man. And, and you don't have to worry about player grades or 
this and that, and yeah, there's some off the field stuff, and you're dealing with millionaires who can tell you to, you know, whatever, just not listen to you, tune you out, I guess is the best way to say it, which is what happened to Nick Saban. You go, there's a Deadspin article on Nick Saban's time there. I mean, these guys were not putting up with his deal the way he yelled at him and, and belittled him. I mean, he's like, look, we're grown men here, Zach Thomas told him. I'm not listening. Don't talk to me like that. I'm a grown man. He's five-time all-pro, and Saban's trying to treat him like he's a 20-year-old child because he, you know, lost gap control on a play or something. There is some adjustments there for any college coach. But, you know, I don't think, Dan, that's how he operates anyway. He's not a big yeller. So I think, yeah. I mean, especially after this year, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I mean, man, God, he could be gone next year. Now, what I'll say is I think a lot of this, from what I'm hearing, I did. I was naive because I was like, yeah, you know, is he really trying to negotiate his contract in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, that's kind of tasteless. Before the pandemic, they gave $500,000 of raises to the staff, a story I reported, in fact, uh, before anyone, $490,000 in raises. He didn't get an extension or a raise. Well, yeah, he wanted to take care of his staff knowing that he was going to get taken care of before the season. Then the pandemic hit a month later. And the optics of giving someone a $500,000 raise and three-year extension or whatever were not good and fiscally irresponsible on top of it for a department that could lose $50 million. Another story I reported before anyone, that $50 million this place stands to lose. So you're going to give a guy an extension? And then Dan shot himself in the foot repeatedly this season, which is one thing that's going to be a real hard sell to an NFL team um, unless he really manages the PR side of things much better, or not much better, just completely differently starting this year and might need to do it for a couple of years. Because, yeah, there have been some loose cannons coaching NFL teams, Jerry Glanville among them. Jerry Glanville was like 30 years ago. I mean, you could do that stuff then. It's such more of a, a business now. You can't be up there just spouting off like Dan did this year about packing the swamp or complaining about the NCAA allowing kids to vote on election day and canceling practice or defending players for stupid penalties like the Marco Wilson thing or losing a bowl game by 35 points and blowing it off like we weren't trying. You know, he had some really bad moments of instigating a fight during the Missouri game. I mean, he was at the middle of that thing. I mean, he was in the middle of this brawl. Really kind of started it in a lot of ways. Started, but he escalated it is a better way to say it. So, you know, you're, so I think what happened is all this stuff, all this negativity, fans down on Dan after the loss um, to Oklahoma, and a lot of fans just not pleased with the way he handled things in terms of the optics of the program all year. His agent, Jimmy Sexton, who's known to negotiate and with whatever tactics he can, Nick Saban, he had him going to Texas, remember, a few years ago? And he ended up getting like a million and a half raise or whatever. Well, I think Jimmy recognized the fact that, you know, Dan, you kind of screwed yourself out of this extension with your behavior and the pandemic, you know, delayed it in, in the first place. So he starts putting pressure like, oh, yeah, NFL interest, NFL interest. Um, the problem was there was no reciprocation. Nobody was interviewing Dan Mullen. There was nowhere for him to go. I've heard in negotiations for a new deal for Dan, which means that he's going to have to make a real commitment, at least for a few more years, you would think. 
So I didn't think he was going to leave. I was told pretty early on he wasn't. There was nowhere for him to go. But it makes a lot of sense that Jimmy Sexton tried to create a pressure point for an extension based on the fact that Dan, you know, he's got a show cause, too. You mentioned that at the beginning, right? They're on probation for a year. Here's a show cause. So you're going to give a coach on a show cause a raise in the extension after all this other stuff he did all year? You need to. He's got three years to go. I mean, you need to really lock him in, I think. But it's a, it's a difficult kind of juggling act, you know, with like with the perception, outside perception of the program. Edgar, one last question before we get out of here. Were you surprised that Kyle Trask finished fourth in the Heisman voting? I mean, this team went eight and four. They played well against Alabama offensively. They were able to hang with them. Then they laid an egg, like you mentioned earlier, when they played in the Cotton Bowl against the Oklahoma Sooners. But still, did you expect Kyle Trask maybe not walk away with it, but at least finish second? I mean, it's in my opinion, it's preposterous that he finished fourth. Yeah, I I would have had him in my top three. I think they picked the right guy. Didn't you think Devonta Smith should have won it? Absolutely. I mean, we haven't seen a wide receiver since Desmond Howard went at 91. So, absolutely. It's always quarterbacks, quarterbacks, and quarterbacks. Why not give it to a defensive guy or a wide receiver? Absolutely. I was behind that. Well, I thought I thought they got the right guy. But second, I mean, it was to me between Trevor and Kyle. And Trevor didn't play quite as many games. He was so spectacular against Notre Dame, though. You saw just how great he was and how integral he was to his team. But here's my thing with Kyle. He was consistent from the first game where he threw six touchdown passes to the last game where he almost led the Gators past the best team in the country. They gave Alabama its best game of the year. Nobody challenged Alabama the way Florida did in that game. Georgia for a half did, but then didn't even score in the second half. Didn't even score. Florida scored a bunch in the second half. Florida looked like it was down and out multiple times. I had a friend who was always like, oh, Kyle Trask, Kyle Trask, whatever. Like, he wasn't that good. Like, I forget what his real knock was on him, but I, I called him the next day and I said, hey, look, if you don't realize and see now what a competitor that kid is, how tough-minded he is, his poise and unflappability, I mean, that's the thing that always surprised me about Kyle, man. He had resilience. He could shake off pick sixes or bad series or, I mean, look at the LSU game. That was the one that killed this season. That was the shocker. That's the game that cost him the Heisman. First half of that game, he had three turnovers. And then he had a stretch in the third and the second half where he went like one of nine or one of seven, I think, on, a, on three straight series that were three and out. That's what cost him the Heisman. But by the end of the game, he had him in range for a game-time field goal, the guy missed. So it's 51 yards, but the other guy hit a 57-yarder, and and the kicker for Ford is good. And 51 yards is not a big deal to him. The point being is he always plays the next play. You hear it, it's cliche, it's reality. I mean, you got to play the next play. So And he always did that. He was spectacular. He led the nation in, in touchdown passes by a mile through 43, a school record at a school with three Heisman quarterbacks, two in the modern era, Werfel and Tebow. He set a school record for yards, 42-15, broke Rex Gross, Rex Grossman's record. 
okay, he went into the damn cotton ball and threw three picks and looked terrible. He didn't have Kyle Pitts, didn't have Kadarius Tony, didn't have Trey Grimes. He's thrown to a fifth-year senior, Rick Wells, who had nine career catches in, in all his time here. He, he's suddenly a primary receiver. And, you know, the timing was off. They didn't practice much before that game. Mullen gave him the whole week off before. He probably shouldn't have played in that game, given that his top teammates didn't play. But he showed, you know, hey, look, I'm going to do the, I'm going to follow through to the end on this, and it didn't work out. But that didn't even count on the Heisman vote. If people want to look back and say, well, look at that, you know, that game's irrelevant to last season, in my opinion, in so many ways. I mean, it just wasn't relevant. I mean, it looked bad, but it really wasn't relevant. The game that killed him was LSU, Kyle Trask, Heisman host, and the Gators host. That's that. I think Kyle Trask was fantastic. He was so fun to cover. I'll tell you, I've not covered many stories like that. Third string, fourth string quarterback, whatever he was. He fourth string at one point <clears throat> since I've been covering this team. Even though he looked like a really good player in practice, you'd be like, why ain't he playing? Why ain't he playing? Well, then suddenly he plays, and then you're really like, why wasn't this guy flying? He's the best quarterback this program's had since Tebow. He leaves here as a, I don't want to say a legend, but pretty close. I mean, he's going to be remembered for a long time around Gainesville, and he should, right, rightly so. He was fantastic. So, yeah, I thought fourth was a snub. Edgar, please tell our listeners where they can find you on social media and where they can find your work. OS Gators, Orlando Sentinel Gators, OS is my Twitter handle. And then our website, orlandosentinel.com. And we do a podcast there. I do tons of writing. Pretty much you got one of my podcasts. I can go on and on. So I appreciate Alex's listening skills, but hopefully you got something out of it. Yeah, I appreciate it. I really do. Uh, you coming on. I know you've, you're pretty busy right now, but I appreciate you being here with me. Of, of course. Thank you. All right. Take care, Edgar. We'll be in touch. I would like to thank Edgar Thompson for giving us the insight into what's going on with the Florida Gators program and what's going to happen next year. And I appreciate his insight on Urban Meyer and how he's going to do with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now let's get to the AFC Championship game. We covered the NFC Championship game earlier. Now we've got the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Buffalo Bills. I think a lot of it is just going to depend on whether Patrick Mahomes is going to play. And all indications point in that direction. But the Chiefs are being silent. They're not letting the cat out of the bag. But let's be honest. It would be really surprising if Patrick Mahomes doesn't play in this game. You know, when looking at what the Kansas City Chiefs were able to do without Patrick Mahomes, you realize how much he means to the team. Because... The Kansas City Chiefs had a 19-3 lead over the Cleveland Browns in the divisional round. And then Patrick Mahomes goes down, and they almost surrendered that lead. They beat the Cleveland Browns 22-17. In all honesty, the Cleveland Browns had every opportunity to win that game. I just felt like if Baker Mayfield didn't make that mistake... Coming out of halftime early in the third quarter, if he doesn't throw that pick, if play calling is a little bit better at the end of the game, then I think the Browns would be in this position to play against the Buffalo Bills. But the Chiefs showed heart, 
Andy Reid had the guts. Remember that play, um, Chad Henney, uh, on third and 14. He ran for 13 yards. It was fourth and short, fourth and one. Yeah, everybody in that stadium, everybody that's watching the game believes that Andy Reid is he's trying to draw the Cleveland Browns offsides, that there's no way he's gonna he's gonna go for this fourth down. And even if he does, it's gonna be a running play. All of a sudden, Tyreek Hill just runs a simple route, catches the ball, picks up five yards, and the game is over. And I just appreciate Andy Reid because he has the guts to go for it in that situation. He's not scared to lose. He's trying to win the game. And we don't see enough coaches doing that on a regular basis. I've seen that even in the during these playoffs when coaches were scared to go for it on fourth down when the team needed it, when the team was driving, when the team had some momentum going. Andy Reid decided to put the game away because he knew the strength of that team was its offense. Even behind Chad Henney, even behind his right arm and not Patrick Mahomes, this is the reason why the Chiefs are once again in the AFC Championship game, and they're playing against the Bills. It's going to be a tough task. Bavada has the Kansas City Chiefs minus three over the Bills in this game. And you know what? The Bills proved me wrong because I picked the Ravens to come away with the upset In Buffalo, you know what? The Buffalo Bills just took care of business. They allowed only three points to the Baltimore Ravens. It didn't look pretty, but a win is a win. That interception return, Lamar Jackson throwing that pick in the end zone, and then Teron Jackson returning it 101 yards for the touchdown was was the deal breaker. It's just little things. The Ravens weren't able to, to come up with that key third down conversion. J.K. Dobbins dropped a couple of passes. The Ravens defense played well. The offense laid a big egg. And I heard Steve Smith say it on the NFL Network that the Ravens passing attack is just too simplistic. The Buffalo Bills secondary knew exactly what the Ravens were going to run. They have to get more creative with their passing game. They can't be that conservative with Lamar Jackson that the opposing defenses in the NFL know exactly what's coming. I think Lamar Jackson also voiced this frustration when the Ravens had that losing streak going uh, during the season. He also said that some things have to change. So I think this might be a signal that that Greg Roman might not come back and that the Ravens might change course and, um, and get a better passing attack moving forward. This is really interesting. The over and under on this game, according to Bovada, is 53.5. The Chiefs have been here before. They won a Super Bowl last year against the San Francisco 49ers. This is a game that could go either way, but I think there's one thing that the Chiefs are not going to be able to exploit. The weakness of this Buffalo Bills team has been their rushing defense, and I just don't think that the Chiefs can can run the football enough. They still want to throw the ball. That's just who Andy Reid is. And I guess you can't fault him when you have Travis Kelsey, when you have Tyree Kill, when you have Sammy Watkins. You have all those weapons in the passing game. I mean, you can't be tempted to throw the ball 40, 45 times a game. But this is what the Buffalo Bills are going to do as well. They know that they can take advantage of that 
that Chiefs defense, that Chiefs secondary, they also have some weapons. Nobody could cover Stephon Diggs. They also have Gabriel Davis. They have John Brown. Devin Singletary is a dangerous weapon coming out of the backfield. I think the Bills will be able to move the football on the Kansas City Chiefs as well. I'm going with the upset here. I'm going with the Buffalo Bills away to beat the Kansas City Chiefs and to take care of business and to get back to the Super Bowl. And hopefully once they get to the Super Bowl, they'll be able to capture it because we all remember how in the 1990s the Buffalo Bills lost four times in the Super Bowl, a couple of those times to the Dallas Cowboys. So that's my pick. My Super Bowl prediction, the Green Bay Packers versus the Buffalo Bills in Tampa. We've seen a lot of head coaches get hired already. A lot of them have been able to to fill up these jobs. Only two jobs remain. It's the Texans, and nobody wants the, the Houston job, and the Eagles. And it seems like Josh McDaniel's name has surfaced once again. It looks like he's going to be the favorite for this position. Obviously, the Eagles chose Carson Wentz, and they believe that Josh McDaniels will be able to correct Wentz's problems. But let's talk about the teams that have hired head coaches. The Atlanta Falcons went with Arthur Smith, offensive coordinator from the Tennessee Titans. The New York Jets have hired Robert Sala, the defensive coordinator from the San Francisco 49ers. Lions have hired Dan Campbell, a former offensive assistant with the New Orleans Saints. Chargers decided to go with the the Rams defensive coordinator, Brandon Staley. And the big one, the Jacksonville Jaguars have hired Urban Meyer to be their head coach. And, you know, the Jags, it's, it's a tempting job. Obviously, you have the number one overall pick and It looks like it's going to be the Clemson quarterback, Trevor Lawrence. They have 11 picks in the 2021 NFL draft. Trent Baalke has become the GM for that team. So they're going with with the former GM of the San Francisco 49ers. They have a lot of money to spend in free agency. They have about $75 million in cap space. Urban didn't have to go far. He used to coach in Gainesville. Gainesville and Jacksonville is, is right around the corner. From each other so we'll see what happens with Urban Meyer you know out of those coaching hires I would go with Robert Sala he is really close to my heart because he was coaching the San Francisco 49ers the last few years and uh, what he did last year uh, when the San Francisco 49ers advanced all the way to the Super Bowl just the dominance that this team had on the defensive line the way they were able to force pressure Richard Sherman had a coming out party once again when a lot of people thought that he was done. And this year, Sala and Kyle Shanahan did an amazing job battling through all those injuries that they had in San Francisco. And they still were able to beat a lot of good teams. And they had a pretty respectable record considering all the the injuries, all the players that went down. He's a fiery, passionate coach, and this is what the New York Jets had to to do. This is the direction that they had to go after uh, because Adam Gase had no personality. He wasn't going to fire anybody up. He's an X's and O's coach. Sala is going to bring passion. He's going to make people accountable, and this is my favorite hire out of those five positions that have been filled. The most questionable 
move, I would say Brandon Staley, Rams defensive coordinator. With all due respect, I realized that the Rams had the number one defense in the NFL, and he was able to accomplish a lot with that unit. But this guy doesn't have much coaching experience. He has been a defensive assistant with the Chicago Bears for two years. He was with Vic Fangio with the Denver Broncos for a year. And he took the Rams job and became their defensive coordinator for only one year. A lot of people are saying he's the next he's the next young, hot thing. And the Chargers really surprised me because I thought that Brian Dable was tied to that job. I thought maybe they would look at Eric Bieniemy, especially when you have Justin Herbert there. But they decided to address the defensive side of the ball. They believe that Brandon Staley is going to be able to, to fix them there. They have a few pieces with Bosa and Darwin James and Kenneth Murray. So they've got some players there. They just need to get a better scheme and get going in that regard. But Staley needs to bring in a, a good offensive coordinator. You have to build on that rookie season that Justin Herbert had, and that's probably going to be the the toughest thing. You don't have to bring in an offensive coach as long as you bring in a good offensive coordinator that will be able to develop Herbert even more. So we'll see what happens there. But the Staley hire kind of caught me by surprise. I realized that Staley has interviewed with a number of teams for these openings. He was a hot name, and I would assume he blew the Chargers away. But it is a bit of a risk when you hire somebody that's only been a defensive coordinator in the NFL for one year. Thank you for listening to another episode of Blitzcast. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Take care, everyone.